coming to you live from the basement of an abandoned house in the middle of a field. It's the Derek Izzy Show. Making history his story, Derek Izzy. Welcome to the Derek Izzy Show. First of all, I want to thank Moses for that wonderful introduction again. And let's get right into the news of today. Local news, according to the Derek Izzy Show, all of our sponsors will now be listed on the website, DerekIzzy.com. Just go to that website and you can see a list of banners and current sponsors of the Derek Izzy Show. Now, what is important about that is that the financing for the show, we don't charge listeners a subscription service. It's all free for you to listen to, but the way we keep the show going is by getting support from other businesses. Those businesses either pay a fee or they give the show a commission that's based on how many of our listeners use their products. We will often rotate these sponsors based on how financially successful our relationship with them is. So sometimes if you listen to an older episode of the show, there might be a sponsor on there who is no longer a sponsor of the show. But the one thing you can count on is that the website will always have the current list of sponsors, as well as the offers that you get by using their services. Part of the agreements that we have with these sponsors is that they will take care of my listeners. So it all works out pretty well in the end. You get good quality service because I will never bring sponsors onto the show unless I'm convinced that they offer a good product. As a listener to the show, you get the negotiated discount to use their service, and you get a good quality product. I get the kickbacks from the companies, and it helps keep the staff employed, and it helps get food for uh, Moses over here. Moses has, for being as old as he is, he does have quite the food budget. Hey now, I only eat three meals a day. Really, Moses? Is it just three? Yeah, three meals a day. I eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then I eat a snack after breakfast, and then a snack after lunch, and then a snack after dinner, and then usually another snack before bed. But yeah, three meals a day. Very good. So please keep using those sponsors. We have to continue to fund Moses and his food budget. And with that, the sponsor of today's podcast is Ting. If you've never heard of Ting, they are a cell phone service provider. Average customer spends $23 a month, and they're pretty radical in the way they approach business. If you call them, you will not get a recording. That is right. You will get a real person to talk to. If you call to set up service or if you call with any issues... 
They have a friendly person who's knowledgeable and will take your call 24 hours a day. What makes Ting different from other cell phone providers is that, well, first of all, they use the Sprint network, so you know you're getting good quality reception. But instead of paying for a plan and signing a contract, you just pay for what you use. If you have one phone line, you pay for that one phone line. If you want 500 minutes a month, if you want unlimited minutes per month, you pay for what you use. There's no contract, and you just piece it together. One of the advantages to piecing things together is that you never pay for what you don't use, and that is how they get your price down. If you don't need unlimited data because you use Wi-Fi on your cell phone, then get the 2 gig a month plan, and that might be a few dollars for 2 gigs of data, a few dollars for the cell phone, a few dollars for unlimited text messages, or if you don't text very much, you can pay for fewer text messages. You can customize the plan for you. The average Ting customer pays $23 a month. Compare that to your cell service. Are you paying more than $23 a month? You probably are. So switch on over to Ting. Now the way to do that is to go to DerekIzzy.com and click on the Ting banner. That does two things. That gets you your discounted cell service and that helps provide money for Moses to fund his food budget. I spoke on the last show that we had a new sponsor who was about to sign with us, a sports betting website, and we were able to bring them on, and I'm working out the details now for you sports fans out there who love betting on the UFC fights and the horse races, and coming pretty soon, baseball betting will be in. And now, the topic of today's podcast. As you might be aware, the Olympics have gone on for a very long time. It's a time-honored tradition here in the United States and around the world. One of the more recent events in Olympic history is the inclusion of women. Traditionally, women were not allowed to participate in Olympic events as they were basically deemed second-class citizens back in those days. But at the 1928 Olympics in Amsterdam, things changed. Now to give you a little bit of a background how things worked back then with the Olympic teams, take the United States Olympic team for example. They traveled by boat to get over to Amsterdam. It's a long journey, but they traveled as a team and they basically lived on the boat. While the Olympics were taking place, they were housed on that ship. It was a different type of lifestyle, but that's how it was back in those days. You couldn't just hop on a plane and fly to another country. Getting on a ship was the means of travel. And since most of the cities where the Olympics were held back then weren't built for the kind of crowds that they are today, the athletes would live on the ships while they were attending the Olympics. One such athlete is the topic of today's podcast. Born in August of 1911 in Riverdale, Illinois, this student at Thornton Township High School displayed some early talents in running. A local school teacher was on a train. Trains were a primary mode of transportation back in those days. And there was a young girl who seemed to have missed the train. 
he looked out the window and spotted her running after the train. She was late and missed boarding, and now she was actually trying to run down the train. In an amazing feat of speed, she was able to catch the train and board it. This teacher took notice. He was very impressed by her raw speed and being able to catch the train. Just on a whim to see how fast she really was, he measured off a 50-meter course inside the school and decided to time her just to see how fast she could do it. And she was fast. She was so fast that he invited her to train with the boys' track team. From day one, she was able to beat the majority of the boys on the team. Running with the boys' team was her chance to get noticed. During her first official race at the age of 16, back in 1928, she finished second in the 60-yard dash. Her second race was a 100-meter race. She is rumored to have tied the world record in the 100 meters. However, her time was quote-unquote unofficial, so she was not recognized as being a world record holder at that point. Her journey to the 1928 Olympics was overwhelming for this 16-year-old. The Amsterdam Games would be the fourth track meet of this young woman's career. The favorite to win this race was Fanny Rosenfeld of Canada. Now keep in mind, this was 1928, and we really didn't see any times that were below the 11-second mark for the women until the 1980s. At the Olympic trials, the topic of our podcast was able to tie the world record in a time of 12 seconds. In her third track meet, that was at the Chicago area Olympic trials. That 12-second run got her a bid to the final Olympic trials held in Newark that year. She came in second place, and at age 16, she was now a member of the United States Olympic team. The stage was set for her first Olympics. The first struggle she encountered was realizing that when she got to the Olympic Stadium, she had brought two right shoes and had to send someone back to the ship to get her a left shoe. At this point, she was very, very nervous and actually considered running barefoot. Fortunately, the shoes arrived and she was able to compete. They stepped up to the line. The gun went off. Unfortunately, it was a false start. Not for our athlete, but for a runner from another country. They stepped up to the gun again. A second false start. Finally, on the third try, the race was run. Fanny Rosenfeld of Canada was the heavy favorite in this race. It came down to the final meter. Neck and neck, the topic of our podcast was right there with Fanny Rosenfeld. It was down to a near photo finish, but the topic of our podcast was able to inch it out and win the gold medal with an official time of 12.2 seconds. At age 16, she had become the first American woman to win Olympic gold. The thrill was overwhelming for our 16-year-old. She was on her way to becoming a celebrity. She was now among the names of people that were known worldwide. 
her chaperone, a man we've talked about on my show, Johnny Weissmuller from the Tarzan series. She was blown away by her newfound celebrity. When she returned to the United States, she was heralded as a hero. She had the chance to travel around the country, participate in parades in her honor, and it was an amazing experience for this young girl. That experience, however, would come to an end. Just three years later, she was training to compete in the 1932 Olympics. Those Olympics would be held in Los Angeles. She was excited about finally having the chance to compete on the Olympic stage in her home country. One day, in an effort to break up the monotony of training and just general life, the topic of our podcast decided to take a plane trip. Her cousin was actually a pilot and took her up for a ride in a biplane. According to witnesses, the plane was about 500 feet in the air when the motor stalled and the plane lost all power. It began to fall to the ground, a nosedive back down to earth, and a loud crash that echoed across the country. The topic of our podcast was thought to be dead. A man pulled her body from the plane, placed her in the trunk of his car, and took her to the hospital. Now he assumed she was dead, but when she arrived at the hospital, they confirmed that she was not actually dead, but she was unconscious. Having her arm crushed, her leg broken, and being unconscious, doctors gave her a slim chance at surviving and they said she would probably never walk again. She would be confined to a wheelchair if she survived. Now, there's some conflicting reports about how long she was in the hospital. From my research, I was able to find that she was actually unconscious and in a coma. Several sources reported as seven weeks. Other sources reported as seven months. But realistically, I think that Out of the data that I found, the seven-week figure is probably more accurate. So that's what I'm bringing to you, that she was in a coma for seven weeks. Doctors didn't even think she would survive, let alone ever walk again. But she had a strong will to survive. She was young and in excellent shape. And she fought very hard to survive. Not only did she survive, but once she was awakened from her coma... In six months of rehab, she could finally get out of the wheelchair. Two years later, she was able to walk. Now that puts us into 1933, when she's able to walk now. Being back on her feet, what was her goal? Her goal was to race again. She had just come out of a two-year training program to get her to be able to walk, and now she wants to compete in the 1936 Olympics. It seemed like nothing would be able to stop the topic of our podcast. She trained her heart out. She worked harder than she ever had in her entire life. The odds that she had to beat seemed to be immeasurable. But when the time came for the 1936 Olympics that were being held in Berlin, she was able to make the U.S. relay team, the 4x100. Now, she wasn't completely healed, 
So they couldn't have her start off the race because she still couldn't bend well enough to kneel down to do the start. So they had her running the third leg of the race. What happened during that race was nothing short of a miracle. This is a clip from a German commentator who was bringing a live broadcast of the race. Now it's in German, but you can really tell by the inflection of his voice what is going on. Meter um Meter rückt Deutschlands erste Läuferin Emmy Albus an die auf den Außenbahnen gestarteten Läuferinnen von Holland und Kanada heran, bringt Deutschland in Führung. Erster Wechsel, Peter Kraus hat den Start. Überspuchtet die kanadische Läuferin Dolsen, überholt die Holländerin Kohn, bringt Deutschland noch weiter in Führung. Zweiter Wechsel, die Dallinger fliegt davon, vergrößert den Abstand. Sechs, acht, zehn Meter voraus. Der Sieg ist der deutschen Staffel nicht mehr zu nehmen. Der letzte Wechsel kommt. As you can tell, he was very excited. The Berlin Olympics took place right in front of Hitler. Hitler witnessed the heavily favored German team dropping the baton on the third leg of the race. The German team was disqualified right in front of Hitler. The Germans had a lead going into that third leg, but after they dropped the baton and got disqualified, the Americans took over. The topic of our podcast handed off the baton to Helen Stevens, and Helen, being one of the fastest sprinters in the game, took off and won the race for the United States. The topic of today's podcast, who played that instrumental role, winning her second gold medal in the 1936 Olympics, was none other than Betty Robinson. Betty Robinson, one of the most remarkable athletes in United States Olympic history won her second gold medal in the 1936 games after recovering from what seemed like a deadly plane crash. Her story was an inspiration to the world. After the Olympics, she got married and lived a rather quiet life, staying involved in athletics as an official. The 1936 Olympics was officially her last race. Betty grew old with her husband, and in 1999, she passed away at the age of 87. This time, her passing was real. Betty Robinson, a true athlete who overcame crazy adversity to return to Olympic gold one of the greatest athletes in American history. And now you know the rest of the story. This has been The Derek Izzy Show. Good day.